I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson, and in a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Tristan, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallaxies listeners. On this edition of the show, non-resident fellow at the Center for International Policy and co-host of the new Palestinian-focused podcast, The Palcast, One World, One Struggle, Helena Coben joins us to discuss the latest events in Gaza, how the UN and international law can play a role in putting this all to some kind of humanitarian end, or at least a pause. We'll be discussing all that and much more. This was recorded on November 16th. Some things have transpired since then, but I hope you enjoy the conversation nonetheless. And with that being said, let's get right to it with Helena Coben. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very happy to be speaking with. Uh, I've actually had people request that I get her on the show before, um, especially in the past month. So I'm very happy to finally have her on. Uh, she's the president of Just World Education and the host of the Palcast, all about Palestine with Youssef Al-Jamal. Uh, welcome to the show, Helena Coben. How are you doing? I'm doing, you know, how it is. Um, it's actually, it's a I, difficult time. And, I, you know, it's been weird asking, how are you doing, uh, given everything that has transpired in the past month? I, you've had the same reaction as my other guests. Yeah. I mean, actually, today, the one thing that made me cry was um, to see in some of the displaced persons camps in the south of Gaza, to see the some of the women from the Palestine Red Crescent Society doing little games with groups of displaced children. And I don't know, it just made me cry to see like how, how wonderful and how lovely that was in the middle of everything they're going through. I mean, I have been a journalist and I've covered wars and massacres and I have waded through human gore. And I have a pretty high um, tolerance for those kind of things, but this just made me cry. <laughs> Do you want to give your initial analysis, I guess, of, well, for, I guess, what is your take on how people have been analyzing the events from October 7th to, you know, a month later now? Because I, I think too many people are viewing this in a vacuum of October 7th to Today is uh, November 16th, and I think this is actually much bigger than that. Well, that's absolutely true. Um, you know, I worked in the media for a long time, both as a reporter and later as a as a as um, an op-ed writer. 
a an opinion person and um first of all i have to say that for israelis for my friends and contacts and colleagues in israel this was devastating you know they um it, it not not just the raw facts of you know the the brutality and the suffering but also it kind of for them it um meant that their whole strategic concepts their whole idea of the security of israel had collapsed and i think they are still dealing with that so um i realize that i'm coming to answer your question in a little bit of a roundabout way but you have to understand that most of the people in the corporate media in this country take their cues very strongly from israel on this you know israeli palestinian question they are much more you know kind of networked in with commentators and politicians and intellectuals in israel than they are with commentators and politicians and and intellectuals in the palestinian community so you know the kind of the mix of emotions this roiling kind of stew of emotions that israelis have been feeling you can kind of see it reflected you know in a lot of the commentary that is published in this country in the corporate media and you know desire for vengeance and shock and horror and how could hamas do this you know they are so brutal and do you condemn hamas you know and and that's the big question in the kind of the public domain whereas you know as you so rightly pointed out there are 56 years of Israel's occupation of Gaza military occupation and and ditto of the West Bank including East Jerusalem that underlie this whole you know explosion of Hamas violence and I have to say that actually the Hamas operation um it wasn't blind violence in the way that I, the uh, the Israeli response has been very blind and just driven by vengeance and fear but the Hamas military people clearly planned this for about 2 years and they engaged in all kinds of deception to make it seem as if Hamas was okay living under Israeli occupation and then they used a lot of very advanced kind of military thinking um you know the Israelis had poured like thousands millions of tons of concrete under the uh the fence to make sure that Hamas couldn't build tunnels so what did they do they got little drones and dropped you know explosive charges on the the observation towers up above the ground you know when you think of it now it doesn't seem like rocket science rocket science is of course a bad term in this context but um it it was sort of fiendishly clever and i think they were i've said before i think they were catastrophically successful they were much more successful perhaps than they had um planned to be and the fact that they were able to just um take down great sections of that horrendous fence that was keeping them in the concentration camp of gaza the fact that um they were able to take down a huge portion of the israeli command and control system for the whole of that region what the israelis call the gaza envelope meant that not just the hamas squads could go out and do whatever their military mission was but people call them like the riffraff of gaza like all kinds of people from gaza roared out of the concentration camp and and you know after 56 years of being locked inside it by the Israeli military and in particular since 2007 when the you know the blockade Israel's blockade of Gaza became much more um intense i mean they they just went out and did whatever they 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 felt like doing it has to be said they were you know you could see if you look at the videos you could see there were very organized squads going out through the fence you could see there were completely disorganized you know there were rebels. people seizing the opportunity and i mean yeah. i i i just want to make people know i mean i it, 
seeing the footage with, you know, civilians and whatnot, it's horrifying. It's an atrocity. But as I've said before, you know, justification and understanding the history leading up to this are two different things, you know, and I think it's important that we think about the history. You know, one of the people that gets talked about as the sort of mastermind of the October 7th attack is uh, Mohammed Daif. And, you know, I think people should know the history of that individual because this is a person who grew up in a refugee camp in 2014. Um, his wife and infant daughter were killed in a bombing campaign. And then I think he he's lost hearing from that bombing campaign. Uh, he lost an eye, an arm, you know, and I have no doubt that that, you know, contributed to the intensity of his hatred um, for Israel and Israelis. So I, I think we have to understand, we don't have to justify the actions in any way, like like what happened on October 7th to civilians, but we do have to understand how this all happened, the history leading up to it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I have worked intensively on Palestinian political issues and Palestinian-Israeli peacemaking issues for nearly 50 years now. And back in the day, you know, it was the PLO is so scary. They do terrorism. You can't talk to them, you know. And I I wrote a book about it for Cambridge University Press about the the PLO. I, you know, did quite a lot of op-eds and opinion pieces and reporting pieces and research projects. And this fundamental concept that to understand something is not to justify it. But if if you can't understand it, then you can't deal with it. So, you know, well, that whole thing I I went through with the uh, Fatah and uh, the other groups that belong to the PLO. And, you know, now it's kind of very similar with Hamas, which is like a, a swear word. Um, and you have to, you know, the first thing in a conversation, you have to condemn Hamas. Like, do you condemn the op- the occupation? Do you condemn 56 years of military occupation of somebody else's territory? Let's condemn that first. And then we can talk about the actions of Hamas or the actions of the Israeli military, you know, and, and you can have a sensible discussion on that basis. Now, you recently wrote about the UN, uh, mm-hmm. what role should the UN be playing in Gaza right now? Oh, I think the the UN needs to be in control, not just of making a ceasefire in the Gaza conflict, and that would be a mutual ceasefire. It would need to be monitored by a credible international body, which I think should be the UN. The UN has had um, a true supervision organization, UNTSO, UNSO, in that region since 1948. So they, you know, technically they know how to do it. They have a, a little force that could be greatly expanded to monitor a ceasefire. But crucially, from my perspective, I think the rebuilding of Gaza that needs to take place, I mean, you have to understand that Gaza City, which it just, it really does make me, so so sad <sighs> to think of you know a big city with about you know 1.1 million people or whatever in the in the greater um, metropolitan area with three universities seven large hospitals schools you know cafes the whole the whole nine yards i mean gaza city was a beautiful place with a little port little fishing port fish markets, great restaurants. Oh, I mentioned the restaurants. I actually published a book by somebody who's a friend of mine who wrote a cookbook of Gaza. Let's see if I've got it here. Yeah, here we are. Uh, The Gaza Kitchen Cookbook. And, Folks, you know, if you're that, only listening to the audio version, that the, she's holding up uh, the book and the food looks scrumptious. It is. Thank you, Joe. Yeah, it is. So go buy the book. The Gaza Kitchen by Leila Al Haddad. You know, but they had a, a very rich cultural tradition, like ancient Christian monasteries, ancient Islamic uh, mosques, and so on and so forth. Looks like Dresden. Looks worse than Hiroshima. Looks like Stalingrad now. You know, and and the Israelis will be doing more destruction there. So, 
people talk about what happens after a ceasefire. The many people in Israel say, we will just stay there and we will build new settlements, Israeli settlements there. Or, and, or like a security buffer zone, I think is what I've heard the most. Yeah. Yeah. To his credit, and I don't want to give him too much credit, um, President Biden says that's not on the cards. But President Biden hasn't put forward any you know, decent alternative. Of course, a return to the status quo ante is just not thinkable because of everything that has happened over the last, um, what is it, 36 days, 38 days, whatever. Um, so you're going to need this huge relief and rehabilitation effort for however many Gaza Palestinians survive this onslaught. You know, I would say probably 20,000 have already been killed because we know about 11,000, but then there are the untold large families in the pancaked down, you know, multi-story apartment buildings that they've never been able to get the, the human remains out of yet. So actually rebuilding Gaza will be a huge, huge challenge. Kind of like what happened in Germany at the end of World War II, but on, you know, on in much more concentrated way, not such a large way. And, and you know, after World War II, you had the Marshall Plan, whereby the United States and its allies poured a lot of money into rebuilding Germany to make it into a, you know, pro-Western whatever um, country. You're going to need something similar to that in Gaza, under circumstances in which a lot of the north of Gaza is very badly polluted by all the armaments, you know, and the unexploded ordnance. So it's going to be a complicated thing. So who should do this? And my proposal is that this should be a major project of the United Nations, which also takes over the, um, the diplomacy for ending the Arab-Israeli conflict once and for all, you know, which has been proposed since 1967 um, on the basis of Resolution 242. But also, crucially, this rehabilitation reconstruction effort could and should be led by the United Nations and not run through Israel, which is what's happened each time in the past. So each time in the past, you know, if you're talking about 2000. 2014, 2021, or whatever, the Israelis would come in and bomb really badly. Then they would reach a ceasefire, and then the occupation would just continue. And the occupation involves Israel controlling the inflow and outflow of every single person and item of trade or just freight in general. Um, Everything that goes in and out of Gaza from the land border, which is a long land border between Gaza and Israel, the short, much shorter land border between Gaza and Egypt, and also the lengthy maritime border, the coastline between Gaza and the Mediterranean. So the United Nations, I think, should just have a Security Council resolution saying we will take control of the rebuilding of, of Gaza. We can send in hospital ships. We can send in large freight liners that have, you know, all kinds of concrete and building materials. And, and honestly, I mean, winter is coming. This stuff should happen very, very speedily. And do, by doing that, they end Israel's occupation of Gaza. They, and they declare, you know, that Israel's, by virtue of the terrible catastrophes and violence and killing that Israel has carried out in Gaza, it no longer deserves to have any role there. And the occupation is hereby ended. That's my plan. So what I want to ask you in that regard is, is that plan possible given all the bad blood that we're seeing now, but it also existed before between the UN and Israel? I mean, we see uh, what the Israeli ambassador to the UN has been saying and doing uh, at UN meetings. And we also have seen the attacks on uh, Antonio Guterres. Uh, does that throw a monkey wrench in any possible UN involvement? 
No, that is not the problem at all. I mean, Israel only exists because of the UN, because of a, a UN resolution in 1947. I mean, you know, the Israeli ambassador there or Benjamin Netanyahu or whatever can use all the bad language that they want against the United Nations. But, you know, they, it's not, we're not talking about two equal parties. We're talking about an international organization and a tiny state that is, you know, whose existence is totally reliant on the UN. The problem is not the bad blood between the UN and Israel. The problem is that our country has a veto in the UN Security Council. So that that is the big problem that needs to be solved. And it needs to be solved, I think, by we Americans who want to see this conflict ended on a um, just and sustainable and fair basis. And also it's a job for the other great powers in the world who need to persuade the US government not to use its veto, the veto that, that it has used to protect Israel throughout the whole of like the post-1967 period. If you could, I wanted to I wanted to have you address um, some talking points that I often hear um, from Israel supporters. And the two main ones I'm hearing right now are, you know, there was a ceasefire in 2021 and October 7th was Hamas breaking that, that ceasefire. The second one, and I think these two are interrelated, is people will say, you know, Ariel Sharon, when he was prime minister, disengaged uh, Israel from Gaza. So they'll say it wasn't being occupied. But at the same time, I mean, you know, it's been described as an open air prison for a reason. I mean, basically, there's checkpoints everywhere. It's heavily uh, cordoned off. How do you want to respond to those two talking points, though? So the first one about you know the ceasefire and um, Hamas broke it. To me, that underlines the need for a much better monitoring mechanism for a ceasefire, a much stronger and more authoritative, that would be a UN um, resolution and a UN monitoring force that would monitor it. Because clearly, you know, the Israelis did not know how to monitor the ceasefire from their side. They, you know, they got taken completely by surprise. So just returning to that is not a guarantee of their safety and security in any way. So that's, that's I mean, I think that issue is very easy to address, that we need a, a mutual ceasefire that um, Hamas stops it, sending its rockets into Israel, which are still going in to some extent, that the Israelis stop bombing the hell out of Gaza, which is what we see on the news every day. That's the first step. And then the second step is a disengagement of forces, which would be the Israelis move back to their side of the armistice line, the 1949 armistice line, and the Hamas fighting force, whatever re remains of it, probably should um, leave Gaza under international supervision in the way that in 1982, the PLO fighting force left Beirut under international supervision. Now, the problem with that as a precedent is that in 1982, that was a, a wholly US-sponsored ceasefire and disengagement in Beirut. And President Reagan gave his word that civilian Palestinians left in Beirut after the exit of the PLO forces would be secure. And then what did we have? We had the massacres of Sabra and Shatila. So, you know, this cannot be the US in charge of this. This has to be somebody who is a lot more even-handed, a lot stronger, and a lot more principled than our government, um, which is the United Nations. So that's the ceasefire issue. It needs to be mutual. It needs to be monitored. It needs to be um, taken very seriously as a stepping stone toward resolving the whole Arab-Israeli conflict, which, of course, our government has never been interested in resolving the whole Arab-Israeli conflict, um, definitely in the last 30 years. So um, about the claim that 
Sharon disengaged from Gaza. Yeah, you know what he did? He pulled out all the Israeli settlers who had been in Gaza until 2005. And the reason, one of the reasons he did that was to give the Israeli military a lot more freedom to do the kind of bombing that we see now against the Palestinians. Because if there were still Israeli settlements there, the Israeli Air Force would not be bombing Gaza nearly as freely as it is now. Um, so that's, they w- you know, they wouldn't be able to do what uh, what they what they've done in the past, but even before October seventh, the whole what's yeah. been called mowing the grass policy. Yeah, mowing the lawn. That that's one. And the other is that they claim that you know Sharon disengaged and that there's therefore no occupation of Gaza. That's nonsense. You know because. The only reason that for the last, what is it, 18 years, Israel has been able to control every single, as I mentioned earlier, every single entry point and exit point into Gaza, and also to control the population registry of the people who are Palestinians in Gaza. So like I have friends who are from Gaza and they want to register their children. They have to do it through the Israelis and who often, you know, it's it's just outrageous, honestly. But the only reason they've been, that they've been able to do that under international law, I mean, if, if our country went into Mexico and said, hey, we're going to control all your international borders and your population registry, it, nobody would allow that. But the Israelis do it in Gaza because under international law, they are con- considered still to be the um, belligerent occupying force. So that's what needs to end is the occupation. I want to talk a little bit about um, how a ceasefire would come about. Uh, it was interesting. I was watching some footage from that March for Israel um, event in D.C. the other day. And uh, I saw that Van Jones was there giving a speech where he said there needs to be an end to the violence. And you heard a lot of yells of no ceasefire, no ceasefire. Now, to be fair, there was what was being referred to as a peace block that went there. So th- these were pro-Israeli voices that were saying, we don't like Netanyahu, but we do want we, we want a ceasefire, but we also want the hostages back. Sort of this, we're anti-Bibi and anti-Hamas. We want a ceasefire, uh, and we, we want a ceasefire that will end the bombing and get the hostages back. So there was that element at the march. Uh, but what did you make of the March for Israel uh, demonstration and what do you make of how we can get to a ceasefire? Um, I did not go to the demonstration myself. I I saw a lot of the same footage you've seen and saw you know very harsh words being spoken, um, including by Pastor John Hagee, who is this like outrageous... I would call him an anti-Semite to be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of people do, but. You know, my friend Medea Benjamin, the head, the co-head of uh, Code, Code Pink, Pink, went down there with a little sign. Just like Medea is not usually a kind of modest person. She was wearing pink, and and she had a little sign saying, "Another Jew for a ceasefire." And somebody was um, filming the interactions she had with the people coming to the march, who were calling her the most outrageous names you know, and wishing that she would be raped and that her mother would be, you know, whatever. And just to see the degree of hate there was very disturbing. I have to say the the march that I preferred to see um, internationally was the one in Paris about, I don't know, 10 days ago, where it was a march against anti-Semitism, which is something that I would be happy to march against, provided it's not linked to like Israel, because there are plenty of Jews, not just Medea Benjamin, but you know, there are left-wing Jews that we have seen. There are the, you know, the very orthodox guys who are come up in their, you know, fur hats and whatever's. Um, and and you know, with I mean they, they are so stalwart. They go to so many Palestinian de- demonstrations saying that, you know, Israel is is heretical from their reading of the Torah. So to, to say that somehow Israel represents all Jews is inaccurate. 
beyond inaccurate. It's it's mendacious. It's deliberate disinformation, and therefore, you know, to to say that um, criticizing Israel is anti-Semitic is equally mendacious. Um, but what they did in in Paris ten days ago or whenever it was, it was a march against anti-Semitism. The only flag that anybody was carrying there was the French flag. And they didn't actually carry, you know, there weren't many flags. It was just a very somber march against anti-Semitism. You know, I, I think to conflate anti-Semitism with anti-Zionism is a real mistake. And but it's one that is very widespread in the kind of the political discourse in this country. I was just going to add to that. I mean, this has even come up within the Jewish community. Um, there was the whole debate over the IHRA definition, and there were some, there were even uh, liberal Jews in America uh, that said this definition is too broad. And I'm not even talking about anti-Zionist Jews. There were even uh, people that I would consider liberal Zionists uh, mm -hmm. that were part of the Nexus Task Force saying this definition is too broad and it's politicized. And the Nexus Task Force said it had different guidelines, pointing out that not all forms of anti-Zionism constitute anti-Semitism. So that's even a debate within the Jewish community itself. Um, in, in terms of the ceasefire, how, how do you think we can get to that? Um, and and how did the hostage figures hostages figure into a ceasefire? Hmm. Good question. So how to get to a ceasefire? Oh, God. Uh, I mean, that is the, the first main political task, I think, um, that we all need to be attuned to. I have just been, you know, bowled over to see the degree of popular mobilization in this country in favor of a ceasefire. And um, very slowly, it has started to have some effect in the halls of Congress, where I think now 31 members of Congress, if I'm not mistaken, have signed a, a letter calling for a ceasefire. But meantime, our president is, you know, continues to just like spout the, the disinformation from, from the Israelis and to say that, you know, a ceasefire, he doesn't say this, but this is what, what a lot of people, his supporters say, is that to, to even think of a ceasefire is to hand a victory to Hamas. It's a surrender to Hamas. I mean, how, how can we get, how have we gotten to this position where calling for a ceasefire is seen as bad? So that's one thing. The other thing is your question about the relationship between um, the calls for a ceasefire and the calls for return of the hostages. Honestly, at a logistical level, I don't see how the hostage, any how any significant number of hostages can be released, so long as the bombardment continues as as harsh as it is. I mean, at the very least, the people who are doing the hostage negotiations need to have a secure channel of communication. Um, the people who are holding the hostages need to find a way to safely get them to the handover point. You know, the International Committee of the Red Cross has worked on these issues um, internationally, like probably since its founding in the 1870s. But I know when I was working as a, as a war correspondent in Beirut in the 1970s, not the 1870s, um, you know, the ICRC was constantly organizing these like very delicate negotiations for how you get hostages from one side across the front line or to the front line and then across the front line. And it's very, um, very sensitive and confidential thing. Now, obviously, the Qataris are also a big factor, but the Qataris don't have people on the ground. Um, the ICRC does. The ICRC has had a presence in Israel and Palestine um, probably since the days of the British mandate there, honestly. Um, but... How, how you do this in the middle of the bombing? Impossible. You know, they were extremely lucky to get, what was it, the two American women and the two older um, Israeli women released. But just to get those handovers done, 
was probably a massive logistical challenge. Um, and so now, you know, if you're if they're talking about eighty hostages, um, I don't know if they're talking about all the non-combatant hostages, um, which is what I've been calling for. I mean, I've been calling for Hamas to um, release all the non-combatant hostages unconditionally, you know. But even to do that, they need a ceasefire in order to like do it. And then if they you know, if they hang on to the many soldiers and military people and armed security guards from the kibbutzim whom they took in, who are, you know, under international law combatants, if they want to hold them for a second round of hostage releases, you know, I, I think that would be understandable. But even getting the, you know, the, the dear old ladies and the, you know, the three-year-old kids and and like all the people from from the whatever it was the rave in the desert um, to get those non-combatants freed it's a huge challenge so I'm actually intrigued honestly by the the movement that has been growing inside Israel and to a certain extent in the Jewish community in this country that calls for prioritizing hostage release. I, I was going to say real quick in that regard, you can find article after article of families of the hostages in Israel protesting now and saying, you know, Bibi, you have blood on your hands. You, What are you doing to get the hostages back? Exactly. Exactly. So, I, you know, I think this, this is a real tension in the um, Israeli leadership. I think the military leadership um, in Israel which is extremely hawkish. Um, you know, if you look at the defense minister or any of the other leaders of like the chief of staff, IDF chief of staff or whatever, I mean, their, their utterances are so hawkish and they want to, well, you know what, they, they are kind of motivated in, in large degree by kind of guilt over, the, over their failure on October 7th. So they have to like reassert their manhood and what they call it, um, reasserting the credibility of Israel's deterrence. But they also need to, and that, that is directed outwards, you know, to all potential um, opponents outside Israel, but they also need to reassert their competence in front of the Israeli public. I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of psychologizing these, like, extremely rabid and vengeful leaders of the Israeli military. But I think the, that kind of mixture of motivations is where it's coming from. And they, I mean, they have do have this thing that you've probably heard of in the Israeli military called the Hannibal Doctrine, which is a doctrine that, like, if an Israeli soldier is taken captive by an opponent, if you want to crush and eliminate the opponent and along the way you kill the hostage, then that is okay. I mean, it's a terrifying doctrine. So I, I think the Israeli military leadership, which is just acting from this like vengeful, and, and it's not rational. I mean, I honestly think that Israel's political and military security leadership has been psychologically unhinged since October 7th. But they they want to, you know, just do this thing. They want to, like, announce to the world that capturing Shifa Hospital is a great victory. Like, what? So, you know, they're not inclined to wait up a little bit and go with humanitarian pauses or whatever to allow for the release of the hostages. So that is a real kind of growing fissure inside the Israeli body politic. Just a few more things briefly here, if you have the time. Um, you know, I was watching a, a video yesterday, uh, and I think it came from Ion Palestine, which has been releasing a lot of videos of uh, different voices in Gaza. And it was a, a video of this little girl named Juju, who I don't think, I mean, I know from the video, she was not able to fully comprehend what was happening with these bombings. And one of the things I noticed she said was, you know, this is happening because Israel is bombing us. 
And, you know, she was talking about, you know, how she's holding out hope. And she talked about it like a child would, like it's just something that's happening around her. If that little girl survives, uh, you know, what's happening, I think she's going to remember this and she'll be able to better understand it one day. And in a way, I, I think as long as the violence continues, you know, you're going to have a new generation that will take up resistance, including armed resistance. Uh, and to me, the thing is, this will just go on forever uh, as long as this type of bombing happens. You know, it, it always creates a new generation of armed resistance. So um, I have a lot of friends in Gaza who have children um, of various ages. And, you know, the way that they describe the the age of their children and the way the children sometimes describe their age is, I am three three wars old. I am, you know, four wars old. And that tells you how old the child is. I mean, these children have been through this many, many times before, and this one is worse, but it's, you know, it's not completely unfamiliar to them, although the degree of displacement and just sheer killing um, has been outrageous. So by the way, I do just want to give a plug to this book that I published, another book that I published. Gaza um, Writes Back. Yep. It's short stories from young writers in Gaza, Palestine. So this book um, is a collection of short stories edited by my friend Rifat Al-Ariyar. I don't honestly know if Rifat is alive or dead right now. Um, so these short stories were all written after the 2008-2009 um, Israeli assault on Gaza. Some of them take a child's point of view. Some of them are fairly literal. Some of them take a, a very imaginative leap into like what it was like to be an Israeli soldier during those wars. But you know, of course you're right. Of course this is going to like this. These wars have already, you know, completely molded the um, the consciousness of of these generations of Palestinians going back to the Nakba of 1948. So, like the old saying has it, an eye for an eye, and the whole world goes blind. Like, let's get out of this cycle of violence. The people of Palestine need to be given a hopeful future. They are extremely well-educated, compassionate, um, have a high, high level of culture, they, you know, and the same with the people of Israel. So if both those national groups could, you know, have a, a hopeful future, then they don't have to, like, they don't have to be fighting all the time. So I know that the Israelis have gone through a terrible, like, shock, uh, like existential shock to their system since October 7th. And they are in a, a real political crisis. The Palestinians are also in a political crisis, political leadership crisis. So, you know, on each side of that divide, you have very tough, like, political challenges to address, which I think underlines for me even further the idea that you just like, oh, we'll leave it to the Israelis and Palestinians to come up with a with a with a peace plan, which is has basically been the American policy since oh since whenever, like definitely since the early 1990s. And, and that is just not going to work. That's why you need the United Nations, which has these very important resolutions that state core principles, such as the inadmissibility of the acquisition of territory by force, which means that Israel has to withdraw completely from all the lands that it occupied in 1967. And, you know, that the Palestinians will need to, well, each, both sides will need to find a leadership that is capable of operationalizing this but the un i think needs to step in like a kind of in a solomonic way and and divide the land according to the line, lines that already exist before we close out do you think there's been a severe miscalculation 
on the Israeli side of things in the sense of we've seen the reports of Netanyahu and figures like him saying things like before October 7th, saying things like we control the height of the flame in Gaza. You know, we can control all of this. You know, the status quo is uh, tenable. It's sustainable. And I think in a way, October 7th has blown all of that apart. I don't think the status quo is sustainable in either Gaza or the West Bank. And I don't think the Palestinians are just going to go away. I think there's some people that honestly wish that the Palestinians would go away, but they're not. And I, you know, you can't expect them to either. Uh, And to me, I think, you know, the only solution to this, and I've had multiple guests say this to me, is that there has to be a political solution. Absolutely. Um, I what I would how I would describe the Israeli like posture prior to October seventh was extreme hubris and extreme blindness. You know, it's the kind of the blindness of. I mean, I really I don't want to over psychologize this, but you know, there is a kind of a psychological condition of solipsism where you're just so self-absorbed. You know, you you don't. You don't really think that other people matter or that other people count. And sadly, too many Israelis have, have, you know, become, have somehow fallen into this position. And um, the United States successive governments in this country have, have um, kind of, what's the word? Um, They've just given in to them. They've just like, uh let let the israelis think that they're the kings of the world and that's why you get this kind of extreme arrogance of of the israeli leaders telling the united nations what to do telling biden what he can and can't do and you know when biden says well hey let's have a, a three-day ceasefire they just blow him off you know what is happening here when our country you know, needs to have decent relations with the rest of the world. We don't need to have, in other words, we we need not to have wars. You know, just see those those bombs, those missiles, those drones. I mean, come on, let's spend that money on what we need to do at home here. I want you to be able to promote your show, your your new podcast, <laughs> Palcast. What is uh, the Palcast and what can my listeners look forward to with it? Thank you so much, Joe. I thought you'd never ask. So um, this is a collaboration between the organization that I had just World Educational and a Dublin-based podcast platform called Tortoise Shack. And the Palcast is, um, it's a new podcast that is, we're going to have two episodes per week. It's hosted by a good friend of mine called Yusuf al-Jamal, Dr. Yusuf al-Jamal. He recently got his doctorate. He lives in Turkey. He travels all around the world. He's an international relations specialist. So he's the, he's the host. And we've done one episode so far. And we're going to have, actually, we're going to record the second episode tomorrow. And we've got a lot of other great episodes lined up. Um, I don't think we can be quite as prolific as you, but we will have, you know, real quality episodes, some with guests and some just with Yusuf and me me talking. So people, you know, I urge all your listeners to go to Apple or Spotify and look for Palcast. That's what it is. Um, it's the Palestine podcast um, featuring Yusuf Al-Jamal. Also, I have to ask you real quick because I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't, I should have mentioned it earlier. I know a lot of focus is on Gaza right now. How important is it that people also keep an eye on the West Bank? Because I'm now I'm hearing things about what's happening on the the Armenian quarter. Um, so I, I think it's important that people also keep an eye on the West Bank. Do you agree? Absolutely. And the West Bank, under international law, includes the whole of occupied East Jerusalem. And then the other area that is under Israeli um, occupation right now is the Golan. And I just want to note that our previous president, Donald Trump, had recognized Israel's annexation of Golan and East Jerusalem as in some way justified or legal, which it's not under international law. And one of the worst things that Joe Biden did when he came in, he did not rescind those recognitions. 
So, you know, that's yet another reason why the United States should not be the main arbiter of Arab-Israeli peace going forward. Um, well, it's, be- especially, not to interrupt you, but especially with the Abraham Accords, I mean, I, I still know right-wingers and Trump supporters that will say that was the best thing in the world. You know, uh, we were so close to Arab-Israeli peace with it. And I'm like, you know, that the Abraham Accords completely shelved the Palestinian issue. It's nonsense. And, and the Abraham Accords themselves have effect, effectively been shelved. Listen, Joe, I really do need to run, but it's been good talking to you. Maybe we Thank you so again. much. Yep. You take care. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax News. I hope you'll check out Helena Coben's The Palcast. One World, One Struggle. It's on Spotify and Apple. I've linked it in the episode synopsis. So check that out. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Helena. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax News, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxedviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say, don't do it. Just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff. It's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.